Hi, I'm Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you're listening to A Better Workplace from Wistia. Hey, Colin. What's up, Jane? I've been looking back at the episodes we've done so far, and we've talked about kind of a lot. Yeah, we've covered pretty much the whole gamut, from pay disparity to race, gender identity, microaggressions, and just generally bias in its many forms. We even threw in a Star Trek analogy. I still have no idea how Ron got away with getting us to do that one. My wife heard me in the other room and could not stop teasing me about it afterwards. Yeah, I suppose it helps having a producer who's a Trekkie producing two rookies in the podcast game. Didn't he call himself a Trekker, was it? Is there a difference? I truthfully don't know, but he tried to explain it to me once. And after a while, I think my eyes just kind of glazed over if I'm, if I'm honest. The point is, we've covered a lot of territory, and I would say we've really delivered on what we wanted to do, which is talk about a diverse set of challenges and perspectives. Absolutely. But I had a revelation I wanted to share with you. All right, let's hear it. As diverse as all of our topics have been, there's actually been one common theme across all of them. It hasn't always been overtly called out, but it's been there, hovering just beneath the surface of every single issue we've addressed. Can you guess what that is? You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it is with you and quizzes. Um, <laughs> if we have a season two, I'm putting it in my contract <laughs> that I don't get any more of these because I've just about had it. We'll see about that. But I'll save you the heartache in figuring this one out. The theme I'm referring to is privilege. Whether we're talking about comp equity, stereotypes in the workplace, gender identity issues, or microaggressions, or even intent versus impact, all of those topics and all of the others we've covered have the implicit assumption that there is some privileged group that doesn't necessarily need to deal with the same challenges that equity-seeking groups do. The whole purpose of equity and inclusion work is to help those who don't have the equity or don't have a sense of inclusion. It speaks directly to issues of privilege, whether that's male privilege, white privilege, class privilege, or really any dominant level of identity. Yeah, so it should stand to reason that before we finish this season, we ought to address the issue of privilege head on. You took the words right out of my mouth. So before we get started on addressing the issue of privilege, it's a good idea to get our bearings and first define what we mean by privilege. And if you've ever participated at all in any kind of public discourse on the topic, you might have noticed that the parties involved quite often have opposing points of view about what privilege is. So for a solid definition, we turn to Beth Chandler, Executive Director of YW Boston, an organization that provides training and DEI services with the mission to, quote, eliminate racism, empower women, and promote peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. Here's how Beth defines it. So we think of privilege as identities that you hold that have advantage to them. And so a couple of examples, and, and often it's social constructs. And so thinking about race. There are advantages uh, in society for folks who identify often as white. An example will be looking at the GI Bill uh, that was put in place after uh, World War II. GIs were coming home from the war and they had access to uh, low interest long-term mortgages. And so for many GIs, this was a way to buy a home, to be able to build equity, to be able to pass both, you know, send your kids to college and to be able to pass down wealth. Well, the government said that only certain people were eligible for those loans, and it tended to be white people living in the suburbs. Um, and so that was an advantage they had as being military and being white males to have access to those mortgages. Um, so that's an example of advantage. Uh, where you go to college is an example of advantage. One of the reasons I chose the colleges that I did was because I knew how people viewed those all across the world and that that would provide an advantage for me. And so it's different identities that you hold, um, often not for your choosing. So you can't choose your race or your ethnicity. You can't often choose your class, 
but all of those things can provide advantages to people depending on, on you know, where you fall in those categories. Oftentimes when these conversations happen, there are people who are in the privileged groups that are usually thinking, you know, they're either centering themselves or immediately thinking about themselves in terms of how, you know, their proximity to privilege. And so sometimes people in privileged groups might not believe that they actually have it based on maybe their financial circumstances growing up or some, you know, specific hardship that they had to endure personally. So a question that, that I'm curious about is, you know, how would you go about speaking and like opening that conversation to people in privileged groups that don't quite believe that they that they have it or or hold privilege? That's yeah, a great question. I I think that it is often difficult for people to understand what it means to have privilege, particularly when you don't feel like you did anything to get it. Right. Often it's just because of the circumstances you happen to be in or fall into often by birth, right? That can lead you to have certain privilege. And so I think for many people, it feels like uh, it takes away from what they have accomplished to say that, you know, part of it may be because of, you know, the privileges that they have due to different identity. And so for us, one of the ways that we talk about it with organizations is around the system, right? And the system of oppression, how it exists and how it provides advantages to different groups. So the example I gave you around redlining, right? People didn't choose that. It wasn't as though the GIs came home and said, you know, we want to make sure we white GIs get this and uh, GIs of color don't, but it happened. And you can see the benefits uh, that it has led to for families being able to accumulate and pass down wealth. And when you look at movies, there was a study done, I think it was in 2016 or 27, that looked at over 26,000 movies and over 60% of the characters who were bad, who were villains, were people of color. But their percentage of the population, and particularly it was Black people, were 60%, and their percentage of the population is 13 or 14%. But, you know, if you're going to the movies, you're thinking, you know, you're seeing all these Black people as bad. How does that impact the way that you view Black people, even, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously because of the imagery you're getting, right? And so... You know, it's not always that people have a choice on the privilege that they have, but it's important to be aware of it and to think about if where you are in privileged identities, how can you use that to help others? Right? And it's important to realize that many people have privilege. And so even though I identify as a woman, as a, a lesbian, as black, all of those categories are you know, disadvantaged, right? And folks would say they don't have privilege, but there are categories that I'm in that do have privilege, right? So I run an organization. So that's a category of privilege. I went to Ivy League schools. That's a category of privilege. And so it's important, I think, for people to realize that everybody has some privilege that they can uh, leverage. And so it's not just, you know, only white people have privilege. So they're the bad folks and they have to make all the change, right? We all have agency. We all often have a, at least one category of privilege that we can leverage and that this isn't a statement about who we are because we may have privilege. It's just being able to acknowledge that that is the case. And now that we know that, what do we do with it? Right? And it doesn't take away from what we may have accomplished or our families accomplished, but how do we, now that we're aware of that, again, use that to help others? What I like about Beth's perspectives on privilege is that she made a point to mention that privilege extends beyond race. The issue most of the time isn't that one group has privilege and the other doesn't. It's what kind of privilege do you have and how is it helping you in any particular situation? For sure. And I think that last comment she made about how you use it to help others is a perfect segue into our conversation with our guest today, Lillian Medville. Lillian is a white presenting Jewish woman from an upper middle class New England family who decided to use the privilege she had to make a game that would help all people better understand the privilege that they have. The game is called Your Privilege is Showing. Right off the bat, I love that title. We discovered her and the game while doing research on this topic and came across her TEDx talk. The salesperson at the register asked me who helped me, which is a reasonable question, but I panicked. I was like, he's tall, lean, dressed in 
gray slacks and a burgundy slim fit v-neck sweater over a white collared shirt, loafers, short hair, brown eye. I would have told them his GPA if I had known it and it would have helped. I said everything about that man except that he was black. I had been raised to believe that the way to be a good, not racist, white person was to not see color, which is unhelpful. She goes on to describe this board game she created that addresses issues of privilege and creates opportunities for hard but necessary conversations in a mediated environment. But she can do a much better job describing the game and her reasons for creating it. So let's get into our conversation with Lillian Medville. The definition of privilege is an unearned advantage. And basically, like I think about it as like, it's the freedom to not think about or worry about certain things. And it's also responsibility. So, you know, I, I'm, I look like this, you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman and present a certain way. And that gives me certain kind of access to certain kinds of audiences and certain kinds of rooms. Certain kinds of people will be more willing to listen to me about this because of that. There's no point in pretending that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that I'm conscious of it so I don't abuse it in any way and be aware. Like, what's my lane? What's not my lane? You know, and running this game, this is my lane. You know, trying to become an anti-oppression educator, not really my lane. Mm-hmm. It's helpful for me. It's helpful to know what's, what's mine and what's not. Yeah. It's a funny thing to think of it that way. Like you and I could deliver the same message to the same room of people in these separate situations and be received a completely different way. Yeah. And because of how I present and who I am, I, in some ways can be more matter of fact and blunter with people. So I get to just get to the point in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And that's really why I built the game is I was like, I'm tired of these conversations going nowhere because they go everywhere. Hmm. I wasn't trying to solve like a larger problem. I wasn't trying to create a business. I wasn't trying to do any of that. I was trying to figure out how I could be more aware of the world that I live in and interact with every day. I realized that I was spending a lot of energy avoiding, like avoiding a lot of the things that were happening. I wasn't really paying attention. And once I realized I wasn't paying attention, I realized how much energy I was expending in like ignoring it. Uh, it's actually it takes a lot of energy to do that, to not see things. So I created this framework because I was really anxious and I needed guidance and I needed a framework in order to start. And I made it a game because it's hard to begin and I wanted it to be fun. You mentioned it was taking a lot of active energy to ignore all of this stuff. Can you share a bit more about what that was like or how you saw that manifest in your life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm Jewish, middle-class white woman, grew up, was raised in a pretty progressive liberal household. So that's kind of like where I'm coming from. And there were a lot of different points when I realized that I didn't know anything. And then I started to make more friends who weren't from my particular background and they had life experiences and they could talk about them with a kind of fluency that I didn't have access to. I didn't have access to the language. I didn't even know what the language was, to be honest. And then once I started reading and trying to pay more attention, I realized like, oh, there's a lot of stuff happening right now that I have been ignoring. You have glasses on. So you know when you've got like a spot on your glasses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like it takes energy to like look around it, <laughs> yep. but yep. you don't realize that it's, you've been taking that energy until you clean them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, that's so much better. I can relax. <laughs> it's like that. I mean, it's just like, oh, like that's so much better because it's not that the knowledge hurts me so much as that like the ignorance hurts me 
being a person who doesn't understand systems or being in a person who doesn't understand where I fit into a system. So then there are a lot of things that are happening around me and to me and that I'm doing that I don't understand. I don't understand the cause and effect. I don't understand why people are reacting to me or why I'm reacting to others the way that I am. And um, that's just like a rolling, that's like a rolling ball of ignorance, like rolling down a hill. And there's a lot of damage that gets done there. And I didn't, didn't want to do that anymore. A question that I have is, so once you were kind of experiencing this, what was the lead up to what eventually became the game? Like, what was the timeline, I, I guess? And then like, how did it all kind of come together in terms of constructing it? I mean, there's no easy answer to that because it was like these different points where it's like kind of discovering how much I don't know. Because, you know, there's a, there's a dominant culture narrative that we have. And um, if you don't look too closely, you're just going to believe it because that's what it's for. It's there to be believed and not to be questioned. You know, I was editing a film. I was working in film at the time. And I was hanging out with people who weren't from my town, you know. I mean, I grew up in a pretty diverse town in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of people from lot of different parts of the world, but it's not a town that has much diversity in terms of race. And I started to have more black friends, I mean, to be perfectly honest, and just listening to them talk about their lives in the most basic way was revelatory for me because I was raised in the nineties. Do you remember like the whole, like, I don't see color. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like in the nineties, that was like how you be like a good white liberal person is like, you don't see color. Yes. And so I was raised in that. So like, I didn't know how to talk about it because I had literally been trained not to. Mm -hmm. I'd been trained not to talk about it, not to see it because that's what, like how I was going to be good. And then here I had friends like who just, I mean, they're just have talking about their experiences and I'm just like listening. I'm the youngest of three. So like, you know, I just like to listen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I realized that they had a language that I didn't have. And I was like, oh, I don't talk about whiteness at all. Like, I don't even know how. I don't even know what it is. Never mind, like, not understanding her not, or not being able or willing to talk about blackness. Like, like, this impacts their lives every day. Whiteness impacts my life every day. Mm -hmm. Like, for better and for worse. The game started there, basically. Can you walk us through kind of how this is set up, how the game is set up, yeah. how it's designed to function and, and yeah. what sort of conversations it fosters? Yeah. So it's a three round game. Each game operates differently. It's kind of like an on-ramp towards like a, it's an on-ramp of challenging skills and that you kind of build as you go through. So the first round is about recognizing, naming, and describing present day injustice. So I'll pull like real life current events. One of the things I think is really important that I noticed for myself is that I really thought of injustice as like in black and white photos. Like I thought about it as past. And I mean like, you know, talking about ableism, talking about classism, talking about sexism, gender, just I thought about it as something that was we had done. Check. So I try to pull things that are happening now. So uh this is an opinion piece. It says, another positive cause of fertility decline has been the assimilation of Hispanic Americans to U.S. fertility norms. In 2007, Hispanic American women had about 67 more kids than their white counterparts. By 2018, the difference had shrunk to under 20%. So the question I would ask if I was running a game is, what is this? What's happening here? And what you have in front of you when you play is you have cards, like literal playing cards. Okay. It's, uh, there's racism, sexism, privilege cards, and then I've broken them down into three levels of severity. So that's gray, microaggression, yellow, unnecessary roughness, and red is macroaggression. So the question is, which card or cards do you think this is and why? We certainly have some racism in the mix here. Which level do you think it is? It's a gut check. There are definitions for it, but it's more about, it's different. Like, it's not about like hard definitions. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
which level of card it is depends on your life, your experience, your privilege. And picking all red cards does not make you like better at the game because it's about the nuance of it. So what do you think it is? Probably yellow. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's some pretty gross stereotypes about a race. I would assume that red is probably more individual, directed, intentional harm. That's how I'm kind of seeing my red yellow. And I don't I don't suspect that that is the intent behind the article. I think it's likely ignorance rather than willful harm. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that this is probably, probably yellow if that correlates with the microaggression. Or was that microaggression is gray? Is gray. Yeah, it, it's interesting because to me, what I'm what what my interpretation of it is, they're not saying anything that is blatant or like you know like Jane's talking about like directed to harm. But what they're doing is, I'm receiving this information as like being framed as either a negative or like positively trending behavioral correction in proximity to whiteness. And mm -hmm. so I guess what makes me think of uh, that as a microaggression is there's not anything that is like blatantly or like directionally racist. Mm -hmm. And that leaves so much room for different interpretations. Like if, if someone is less aware of that in their day-to-day -day experiences, mm -hmm. they're thinking, oh, well, does that mean a lot of Hispanic women are out here having a lot of kids? And then the way it's framed is kind of like, oh, well, you know, maybe they should slow down and be more like us if this is like a white person, you know? Um, so I think, you know, uh, I'm trying to play the game correctly and go with my first choice, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, you can, I mean, you don't have to, you can change your mind. It's not, it's a conversation. Right. So the game is basically, a, it's a facilitated and it's like a gamified conversation about mm -hmm. this because this just happened. This is real life mm -hmm. right now. So like, and this is messaging, it's about like cultural competency, media literacy, like what are they saying? What do you know? What, what's, what's happening? Can you, can you translate the dog whistles? Can you translate and know what this is? Because they're saying that it's a positive cause of fertility decline that Hispanic Americans are assimilating into U.S. fertility norms, which by which they mean by into whiteness. Mm -hmm. So it's a mm -hmm. good thing that Hispanic people are having less kids. Meanwhile, there's been article after article after article being like, we're having a decline in births. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what they mean is that white women are not having enough babies. Mm -hmm. So just the way it's framed, even like the premise of the whole thing is based in white supremacy and racism. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, in 2007, Hispanic American women had 67% more kids than white women. But it's great because now it's less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that's really, I would say that that's a red card. And that doesn't mean that your gray and your yellow card are wrong. That's what you believe. So we get to listen and learn from each other. And that's really the point. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's tricky about this is that if you don't kind of sit with it for a second and parse it, and I've had more time, obviously, with this than you have, and I can read it again, and you you can't see it. Um, so I have an advantage there. I feel like this, for me, this was like a booth review. Like, uh, you know, it's like it happened on the field of play, and after review, you know, it's like I'm, I'm upgrading this to a, at least a yellow. <laughs> you know, well, like, and that's often how it goes, is people listen to each other. You hear like... Well, from my experience and my understanding, and people add their own expertise. So like we get to learn from each other and share our knowledge and share our experience, which ends up being a really powerful way of learning. It's a learn by doing mm -hmm. approach, right? So it's like, you're like, oh, this is my gut reaction, but like, I'm allowed to change my mind because I'm a person mm -hmm. and like, this isn't absolute. So like after listening my mind has been changed. And you can see that in little moments throughout the gameplay, which is powerful stuff. 
it's certainly powerful. I don't know if this is your experience in this, Colin, but I don't think either of us were expecting to do this. And it certainly is like an uncomfortable conversation. It's not something that you're just going to start at a bar with no like intentionality behind it. How do you Mm -hmm. like, how does the game or how do you set these, you know, rounds up to be played in, I would assume folks need to feel safe to play this game. So yes. And also I tell people that the goal is not comfort. I mean, so I give people a lot more pre- like a lot more setup than I gave you. I just threw you in. I mean, I didn't even tell you what the definition of the cards were before we started. So like fair is fair. But <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this experience is that because I'm asking people what they think and what they believe, I'm not saying like this is these are the right terms to use or we're not like going through the history. We're talking, and we're not even talking about necessarily in this round, your personal experience. We're talking about what you believe about something external to you. And that's, people have a lot of anxiety about that. Like, of course, but we talk, I mean, in in like the setup to the game, I'll talk a lot about, you know, fragility. And so I have kind of a tool that I teach players about emotional management. And it's not about managing each other's emotions. It's about learning to manage yourself. Um, And it's something just to learn to track yourself, to track your own emotions, and basically to track your anxiety. And the goal isn't to control your anxiety. The goal is just to know where you are because we all have our limitations, right? So like having a conversation and all of a sudden somebody spikes up to what I would say spikes up to red. And then like there's yelling and then people are walking out and the conversation stops or somebody spikes up to red and very often a white woman bursts into tears and the conversation has to stop because everyone has to comfort the white lady because that's part of sexism and racism is that we get access to femininity and so we get to stop and everyone has to comfort us. So in order to help people manage themselves and to stay in the room longer, I teach them an emotional management tool so that they can stay if they want to. But I also tell them at any point, you're free to leave. So there's lots of studies that say that like diversity, equity, inclusion trainings are not super effective, particularly when people are mandated to do them. Mm -hmm. People need to feel like this is their choice because people need to feel agency. Because if you're going to do something hard, you need to not feel like you're totally out of control. Otherwise... Is something that is happening to you. And honestly, that's a hard place to try something uncomfortable from. Like I'll tell people like you need to feel safe enough to take risks, but this is not a safe space. This is a space where I'm going to ask you challenging questions and I'm going to push back if I think you need it. So this is a brave space where I'm asking you to be brave. And I'm also asking you to take care of yourself. Like at each point, we each have different limits. And some days, like, honestly, I'm more fragile than others. And like, I can't take feedback in the way that I would like to. And so I have to be mindful of that and just be like, today, I'm a little bit of a fragile flower. And today I'm going to just, you know, listen more. And, and, and to kind of lean back a little bit so that the conversation continues so that I don't stop it. I'm curious if you have, there's like this, um, conflict isn't the right word. Folks are aware to varying degrees or willing to acknowledge at varying degrees their privilege. Mm-hmm. So something that may pop up as a gray card or yellow card to one person and somebody else can't even see the gray card, how does that dynamic start to show up in this game? I'm sure that it happens. It doesn't happen frequently, actually. Okay. It has happened before, but then the person who can't see it, then they get to listen to other people who can. And either they change their mind or they don't. You're not here to be lectured by me. And you don't have to agree with me. Like you have to agree to play by the rules of the game. And there are shared terms, you know, like reverse racism doesn't exist. So you can't play it. 
And you can disagree with that on your own time, but the rules of the game state that if you want to play, can't play it. And sometimes people will leave me little angry notes at the end of the day, and that's fine because mm-hmm. I have, there are parameters for a reason and there are rules for a reason, but you can't make people see what they don't want to see. And you can't push people past where they're ready to go. Change and learning happen at their own pace. Maybe one of the the most important pieces for folks to understand and you know, and anyone who's listened uh, to any of our episodes will certainly have have heard our um, our mention of the diversity ladder, uh, which we like to think of on this podcast as you know, there's there's various rungs with no real top to the ladder, but yeah. there's there's different rungs that everybody who's coming into this work is at, and I think it's important to call out that there's always going to be people who are on various rungs of that ladder. Sometimes it's the very first mm-hmm. one. And then there's other people who are, you know, five, six rungs up the infinity ladder, I guess. And um, I've had so many conversations with with friends and, and, and family about this line of thinking, because I think at this juncture, we've kind of hit like a a critical mass over the over the last year where everyone's thinking about this and everyone's talking about this. And so many people are like out of patience and um, very quick to, to anger about all the things that continue to happen. And believe me, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people that like, you know, I have really just had it <laughs> with, a, with a lot of things that happen in the world for numerous reasons. But I feel like if we're trying to get to a specific place that we have to try to bring people with us and you can't drag them there. Yeah. I mean, the question is like, what's the purpose of the work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. So like the purpose of the work that I do is to help people begin to have a conversation. Cause like in order to speak directly about these things, people need to be able to think clearly. And so I want people to, it's like a training and thinking about this differently. I want them to be direct. Mm -hmm. I want them to be honest, but not cruel. I want people to not beat themselves up for what they don't know. So there's two core philosophies to the game. There's the that's okay card, which is a card that's worth half a point and anyone can play it at any time. You know, you can give it to someone to acknowledge them and to acknowledge the, their anger and their experience. You can give it to someone to say like, just because you did like a sexist thing one time and you are acknowledging that it was wrong, does it mean you're garbage forever? Like, that's okay. Like this is, we can learn. Mm -hmm. So I want people to have a way to both acknowledge each other and acknowledge like the wisdom that each other bring. And like you get, you get a, that's okay card for that. And, you know, if you are being vulnerable and honest about the ways in which you've been classist and you've hurt yourself, you've hurt others. And you're like this, and you're acknowledging it in a way that's not just like, I'm proud I did this, but it's like, you're acknowledging it and that you're saying, I understand that that was wrong and I'm trying to fix it. You get a, that's okay card. And then the other concept, the other core philosophy for the game, it's a perfectly adequate human star. So you can see that it's like a wonky star. (laughs) I designed it on my phone. (laughs) Basically, the idea behind this is that there's no end to the things to learn and there's no ending to the things that the ways that we can be better, more caring, kinder to each other, kinder to ourselves. I mean, we're all in these systems. And so we're all part of these systems. Like there's no way to be in them without being part of them. Right. So like the goal is for me is to be a perfectly adequate human. I'm not trying to be perfect. I'm not trying to get it right all the time. I mean, I'd like to, but like, that's not possible in the game. It's like, if you don't know stuff, that's fine. But like, once you have the information, you do with it what you will. And if you decide to have that information and you decide to not use it or then like you might get judged because that's how it works. (laughs) And that seems like an okay consequence. We're not going to solve racism and sexism and classism with just education. People have to decide. 
like, I'm not okay with this system and I want to change it. So the second round is the inverse of the first. So basically I'll have players, like one player will pick one of the nine cards, the sexism, privilege, racism, gray, yellow, red. And everyone will go around and talk about something from their life experience that they think matches that card. So it could be something they've done, something that someone's done to them. It's a very vulnerable round. And sometimes I will hold it back until like a, a second or third session just because there's a lot of trust that's involved there and not everyone's ready, which again is okay. But it's a, so it's much more personal. And I, I do challenge people and I invite them. Like if you have more status and power in a certain area, I encourage you to think about something that you've done. It's a lot easier to think about it can be a lot easier to think about the ways that we are victimized by systems than it is to think about the ways that we perpetuate them because we all do both. I mean, obviously different degrees. I can uphold the patriarchy just like anyone else. So thinking about the ways that I do that or the ways that I was classist or ableist, transphobic or homophobic, like, you know, it's a grab bag of, you know, hopefully not too harmful things, but for me that I've done. But anyway, so that's the second round. I'm not going to ask you to do it because it's very vulnerable. So people do that round. And then the third round is basically I have a complex question that I've written that I, that I ask a couple courageous volunteers to answer under two minutes timed. And then so anyone can play them. And the nine cards are now worth negative points. An example of the third round question could be, oh, and I forgot to say, um, if either of you are doing incredibly well while you're playing, I may yell devil's advocate card. And that means that you have to argue from the opposite point of view with all the other rules still in place. So the question is then, can you make an argument that you don't agree with without resorting to racist, sexist, classist, privileged language? So... What happens to a people, good and bad, when they become accepted as white, as opposed to, for example, Jewish, Scottish, Armenian, or Egyptian in the U.S.? What do they gain and what do they lose? So just to make sure I understand the question again, it's uh, someone who is categorized or identified as, as white? So you know how like, like the Irish became white, mm -hmm. like Italians and Jews became white, sort of like between... There's some argument about this, but like people, I, I have read um, that Jews and Italians became white between uh, the GI Bill after World War II. And then finally in the 1966, I think, uh, Fair Housing Act, because you could no longer uh, just uh, redline Jews and Italians. Of mm -hmm. course, the point was not to help the Jews and Italians, but we both know. So that, that's the point when in America, not talking about internationally, when in the United States, Jews and Italians got access to whiteness. So the question is, what happens to a people, good and bad, when they become accepted as white, as opposed to Jewish, Scottish, or Armenian, or Egyptian in the U.S.? What do they gain? What do they lose? What they gain to me is, is, is the easier thing to answer because I would blanket statement it as everything. They benefit from all of what comprises and structures white supremacy, specifically in this country. The closer in proximity to whiteness you are, the greater benefit you stand because there are current structures in place that directly benefit those people. This is a much deeper philosophical discussion, but I think that is why there are even other demographics who are non-white that align themselves in you know proximity to whiteness because for uh, I guess to really oversimplify it, it's a if you can't beat them, join them type thing. What I think you lose is your opportunity to participate in cultural differences in understanding and even though you may belong to a larger group, uh, there are things that can stand to be benefited from 
by sharing in cultural differences, even if you are, you know, quote unquote, in the larger white group, you are sacrificing a piece of what makes you unique, what makes your people unique, your history. In some ways that's preserved, I guess, you know, like there's a lot of like Irish pride and there's parades and, you know, Italian day parades and things like that. But I guess the further you lean into the larger consuming power, the more of yourself you're giving up. Uh, final answer. I think that was awesome. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Was I under two minutes? Uh, you were like, um, yeah, you were, because I was literally timing you. Okay. You stopped. You had like 13 seconds to spare. Right under the gun. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that was great. Cool. Are there things that leaders can take from this game? Can they facilitate these in companies? Are there other dynamics that they can learn from and incorporate into creating more inclusive, equitable spaces for folks? I mean, I wouldn't recommend that like a CEO facilitate a game. Like that seems like a disaster waiting to happen. The, the power dynamics are so complicated. Like basically there's two different ways to play. There's an at-home version of the game, which is like a simplified 101 version that I created just so that more people could have access to the tool. And it's for friends and family to play like at home, peers, where there's not like complicated at work <laughs> power dynamics and organizational stuff happening. And then there's facilitated games, which right now is always me. And the goal for myself is to create a training program so I can train other facilitators to use this in their work because I think that would be super helpful. But basically like it's hard. I mean, for someone who's running a company and wants to like, you're never going to get away from the power dynamics of you being the boss. Let's say there's a company of six, including the CEO, and they want to play. The onus is on the person with the most institutional power and privilege to dig deeper and be the most honest and lead by example. You got to be vulnerable, which is hard because like trying to be the boss, but like that doesn't work if you're going to do this. I think that makes sense even on a broader like through a broader lens as we think about how efforts and progress can be sustained. I think if there is not a real commitment and openness and vulnerability and willingness to acknowledge when you've made a mistake from the highest levels, it is hard for the rest of the company to kind of sustain that without that kind of leadership. Yeah. So it's really important for everyone to have this access to the same language. When I'm working with like really large companies, I tell them that like we can two prong this. Like, why don't we have like leadership play and then we can have like a big talk for everyone so that everyone has access to the same language and the same, the same terms so that everyone kind of, we can start at the same place more or less. And then, you know, if it works out, then we can start to do run sessions with people throughout the company, throughout the organization as well. But like, you can't do top down and you can't do bottom up. It's like when, you, you know, it's the same reason why like everyone goes to the same talk or, you know, you, everyone like, I don't know, gets the same like code of conduct. Like you want to set expectations, right? And it's a complicated thing when you're the person in power because the interrogation is power. Like, I, like my definition of whiteness is access to power. Like, that's how I think about whiteness, is access to power and privilege. So it's complicated. And you need help. Basically, if you could do it yourself, so many of these jobs wouldn't exist. Like, my job wouldn't exist. Like, I would do other things. This podcast probably wouldn't exist. You guys would talk about something else. Like, it's hard, and everyone thinks they can just do it, but it keeps failing. And there's a reason for that. So like people will often reach out to me in organizations and they want to buy the at home. And I'm like, I recommend guidance. If you want to actually get into something and you want people to really feel safe. Also, you need someone external to be mad at. And I can carry that because if you're trying to create like a cohesive group, like there needs to be safety. And if you have the boss run a session, there's no safety in that. There's too much discomfort and like the math of like discomfort and safety 
Like we're never going to have absolute safety. We're never going to have absolute comfort, but like the math needs to work out so that people can be honest. Otherwise, who would be honest in that situation? Not me. (laughs) I would say as little as possible. And that's not the goal, Mm -hmm. right? Bringing it all together, it feels in a lot of ways that the only way we can truly make progress collectively is uh, as a group. There, There's no like, you know, to your point, like when you run this game, there's a facilitator and everything, but we don't have like some, some arbiter of uh, social justice accomplishment or something. It's like, we're, we're all navigating a large life experience in our own ways, but still together, you know, at the end of the day, we're all here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think however that is accomplished, I guess it doesn't really matter what it what it looks like so long as everybody's doing whatever it is that they can to contribute to a better society and a and a better workplace and everything and I really like I I've enjoyed hearing about you know the the structures of this game because it's it's kind of accomplishing two things it's making it palatable and a low barrier of entry because it's you know who who doesn't love a game I guess but mm-hmm. this game isn't always fun. It's, it can be hard and introspective and difficult and you have to wrestle with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I would say all games are like that. I played this, field hockey yeah. and it was yeah. not always fun. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's sometimes it's even more difficult to, to conceive of a game where there's really no, no winner, so to speak, but well, you can win. There is, a, you can win because there's a point system, but one of the fun things that I really enjoy is watching people forget about the point system. Mm-hmm. So, cause that all, that happens in 99% of the game games that I've run at a certain, a certain point, people stop counting and just engage with each right. other. Right. So I, I just, I interrupted your sum up. I'm so sorry. No, no, that this is, this is perfectly fine. I think that's, this actually helps me put the finer point on it. And that like the game is the game. I guess, Mm -hmm. but if anything, it's really just serving as a vehicle for what we're all trying to do anyway, which is like foster conversation and better understanding. Yeah. I mean, and it's, what's been interesting for me is having conversations with organizations where they would love me to bring a talk, but they don't want to play because even talking about it is too much for them. They're not ready for that. And those conversations are frustrating, (laughs) but that's where they are. You can't make people talk about stuff they're not ready to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's all just about meeting people where they are. Well, it's about consent, right? Mm -hmm. Like what kind of, so it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be nervous and you're probably going to be worried about getting it wrong. So I tell people before we play, like, you're going to be bad at this. That's my expectation because you've never done it before. Mm -hmm. So from the baseline of, you're going to be bad at this. And also you're already great. Just you're a great person and I'm glad you're here. And that's the baseline. And that's where we begin. There's so many things to learn. And the game's not about, not just about race, it's about gender and it's about classism and it's about ableism and it's about fat phobia. And like, there's a chance to, there is, you know, toxic masculinity. There's unbelievable chances all the time of these examples to like bring up and to talk about and to see and to explore and to see where we're each at. There's always more to explore and more to learn because we want to be kinder to ourselves and to each other and more generous. There's this James Baldwin quote. It's basically some version of like, white people, this shit is your problem. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, maybe it's not your fault, but it doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. So let's, let's clean up our mess. So Colin, can I share my initial reaction to when we recorded this with Lillian? It was super uncomfortable. I was not prepared to play the game and uh, was not as fresh as I could have been on, you know, the different colored cards or 
rules, but it was definitely like really uncomfortable to kind of think through and then articulate, you know, perspectives on some of these situations with like the fear of getting it wrong. What was, how did you feel? I feel like you went with it a little bit more than I did. I think it's because I'm just always willing to jump right into whatever, except for quizzes, as we as we've previously discussed. But for me, the the thing that I tend to do with that is overthink the options too much. So like when we were going through and playing the game and everything, I was like getting too caught up in exactly what the colors meant and you know how finitely I guess. I can bucket my answers into. I don't know if you've ever seen that meme where it makes fun of like, you know, like the captcha images and it's like how OCD am I where it's like pick the cars and there's like one edge of a car in this little teeny square. That's kind of how I was thinking about the game. But overall, I think it, I like the design of it because I think it allows people to answer honestly without getting, you know, sometimes I feel like people can amend their answers once they've, heard someone else's answer or while they're hearing someone else answer, they might like start thinking, you know, the gears start turning in their head. And so then they might change their answer. But I think it's good to kind of just get an assessment of immediately like the kind of the knee jerk reaction of how people think about these things. And to your point about there not really being a right or wrong, I think that's what this game accomplishes. It's, it's not necessarily that there is a definitive way to define how we think, talk, and feel about privilege. It's more in like how we interpret it and navigate it in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, I found myself thinking, okay, I know that there's something wrong with this scenario that she's describing. Let me think of the ways in which this could be harmful to individuals and to larger groups in a way that I don't think we normally approach even reading the newspaper. I think she pulled these articles out of the newspaper and it just was a good reminder that the systems are so surrounding us that like you actually have to bring an attentive eye to everyday things where you're not expecting to kind of monitor for different forms of discrimination or stereotyping or privilege. I had a written question before we met with her about doing this game in groups at work as like a, a, a way to foster learning and even just kind of being put on the spot. I think this game is probably really hard to play in general but I, I can't imagine doing it without a mediator or without a group of people who I at least knew and trusted pretty well. When we say game, I think that's just kind of like a, you know, the larger category. It's not like we're, you know, gathering around a table and playing like cards against humanity or something. This is like it's just more of like a, a, a an accessible way to begin these conversations and jumpstart these thought processes. And another thing I was thinking of, not necessarily when we were doing the interview, but kind of when I was thinking back on it, is that I, I, my initial interpretation was that this is a great way. It's, it's a low barrier of entry for people who need some help or assistance in fully understanding structures of privilege and the nuance of them, right? Because I think sometimes when we think about it, people tend to bucket it very largely. You know, we we touched on this earlier in the episode where some people tend to interpret that as, well, you know, is privilege this one group having everything in the world with no struggle and this other group has nothing and struggles with everything? That's not what we're saying. You know, it's, it's all about the nuance. And so my first interpretation was like, wow, this is a great thing for people who are, you know, first timers or looking to dig deeper into, you know, where, where those nuances lie. But then I was also thinking about the benefit in people who are a part of equity seeking groups being able to better name the privileged structures that affect them. Because, you know, sometimes coming into it, 
we think of, you know, my, myself as a black male, think of privilege as a very large bucket as well. This kind of a game helps both of those groups better articulate the, you know, the, the different types of privilege that exist. And I think most importantly, where those privileges become intersectional. Because again, using myself as an example, there are very acute and definitive roadblocks, I suppose, that I have to navigate in my life as a black male. But I am hetero, I am cisgendered, and there are privileged structures within that. And so, you know, that that kind of ties it into the whole idea of where those privileges intersect and how we can better navigate our day-to-day lives and per, you know professionally and personally with each other understanding where those privileges intersect and how we can you know lift uh lift each other up with the privileges that we do hold I thought it was super interesting it was coincidental timing but we did this exercise around the same time that we at Wistia did kind of a training around identity And you and I were in different trainings. I was in the manager training and our training was really centered around thinking about the different dimensions of our identity and identifying the areas in which that bestowed benefits or made things easier for us and the areas in which it maybe held us back or made paths harder. And as you look at this graph of everybody who's in the training kind of putting their identity anonymized out there. There's nobody who is in kind of the inner ring, most uh, privilege all the way across the board. There were a lot of folks who kind of were, you know, on the farthest out on this kind of circle. It's, it's hard to describe to the audience without showing it, but in the more marginalized identities, people who you would think on the surface level um, probably are in the most privileged class have elements of their identity that are not the case. And the reason I think it was helpful going into that training so closely with doing this interview with Lillian is it's really helpful to not only think about your own identity, but to practice thinking about the identity of others and ways in which that has given them advantages and disadvantages. And so I found them as like a great paired exercise in learning how to think about it and learning how to talk about it. I feel like sometimes when we're having these conversations, you know, the easiest thing to do is to kind of retreat into protection mode because I think when you're talking about privilege, no one likes to really feel like they're a part of a privileged class, right? Because I think for whatever reason, or maybe it's numerous reasons that when people are told that they hold privilege, they often tend to think that that is in tandem with, you know, mitigating or disenfranchising like their own struggles, I guess, and in, in, in whatever they've had to navigate in their own lives. You know, I think, I believe we discussed this in either this episode or another, but you know, people who may have come up with lesser means, you know, that like if, if they grew up low income, like their family, whether it was in a low income neighborhood or not, they might say, oh, well, you know, like my, my mom had to work really hard, you know, like single parent household, whatever the case may be. And they think that if we're, you know, prescribing privilege to them, that it therefore negates anything that they've had to navigate previously. What I think that these exercises in the game do well is kind of remove that layer for people to kind of like retreat within themselves and think about these, uh, you know, situations that aren't specifically speaking about them. Because I think that's how a lot of conversations go. Like if I were to open up a conversation with someone about privilege, we're probably both going to start thinking about things in our own personal lives. But then when you're presented with these things that are either like an outside circumstance or, you know, a a fictional backdrop in some way. I think that that helps people kind of step outside of themselves a little bit and think about the bigger picture. It's really hard to think about making sustainable change if we're not able to kind of reflect on these things and remove some of the emotion. Because when we're talking about 
identity, some of the things we were talking about in the YW training, they're not things that we as individuals had any control over. I didn't have control over, you know, my race or my gender or my religion growing up or my class growing up. But these are things that made certain other things in my life easier or harder. And I think divorcing the emotional attachment to your identity is helpful. And I think if we can't talk about and reflect on our own identities and similarly on the identities of others and how those levers are being played, it's, it's really hard to think about us as a country moving towards a more equitable place if, if we can't just think about these as systems that exist that we have to address and make more equitable versus an emotional attack on me, the individual, because I am white, because I grew up middle class. It's not that, but I recognize that that opens doors for me that were not as easy for others to open. This has been a production of Wistia Studios. The hosts are me, Colin Denny, along with Jane Jackson. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Ron Dawson and was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Huge thanks to our guest Beth Chandler of YW Boston and Lillian Medville of Your Privilege is Showing. Be sure to check the show notes for links to their work. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. Till next time, and this one's for you, Ron. Live long and prosper.